expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Here we are, it's a kind of holiday edition of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where, you know, Nick, the more and more I think about it, Dormammu sounds like a Spanish sleepy time medicine. It's hard to get sleepy right now because the studio is fucking freezing, because, and it sucks because we can't turn the heat on because uh, it'll, the mics will pick it up. Well, there's more pie. It's true. It's probably frozen solid, but it's, it's that is true. That is very, very true. I mean, as long as warm it up and you're good to go. As long as it's pumpkin, man, I'm good. All right. Well, that, that, there should be some in there if you want to check. I'm James with them alongside. The pumpkin pie eating Merc with one arm, Nick Battaglia. And, you know, James, as you mentioned, it is Thanksgiving week. And, you know, let, let's, let's do something we kind of do every year. But let's do this. Let's discuss three things in nerd culture from this year. And we understand 2016 has been a shit year for a lot of various reasons. Yeah. But – Three things we're thankful for in nerd geek culture in 2016. If you want to go, for, if you want, to, you want, do you want to go first? Or you want to just go one and one? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll go. For, I'll go first, and then you go, and then yeah, we'll we'll flip back back and forth. But uh, okay, the first thing that comes to my mind that I'm thankful for, and I'm sure that you'll agree with this as well, I'm thankful for DC Rebirth and resetting what we love about DC Comics because man there are so few that I can think of that haven't just knocked it right out of the park. Yeah man, I think that you look at everything that's done with DC Rebirth just again bringing the characters back to what made them great and what made them, you know, fun to read back then before New 52 and everything else. DC's really hit it out of the park and they still have things I mean that's the thing is we're in November and they still have things they're getting ready to pump out for Rebirth. Yep. It's insane. Yep. And the trades are coming out. You know, if you're thinking for something for the holidays, for that special nerdy someone, the trades are coming out for the first volumes of Rebirth. Just just something to think about. Well, something I'm thankful for in 2016 is actually something that's really recent in my life, and that's League of Legends. I'm so thankful for League of Legends. I now have... <laughs> I have like almost no life now because I'm I'm like well because okay so I wanted to go see Fantastic Beasts on Sunday and I'm walking around the mall waiting to go see the movie and I'm like I've never played a game where I'm walking around society you know outside of my apartment and where my computer is and think of like strategies and thinking of like okay what can I what weapons can I use what what upgrades can I do I'm fucking addicted yeah now you've got ash is your cover photo on Facebook and everything I do I mean it's like it's like <laughs> ridiculous you, you dove we've do, dove 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 in with both feet and one and a half arms and you're just ready to go <laughs> and and the person who got me addicted to this you know who you are <laughs> so, and he's thankful by the way I'm thankful, thankful for her and for her uh Putting League of Legends in my life, it's been uh, amazing. Yeah, hey man, Ash is my favorite champion because, again, Archer, and you have awesome range attacks. Like, ah, oh, dude, hey, I'm so not fun. arguing. I'm not arguing. I think it's. I think that that's very. That's something you should be grateful for. Right. <laughs> and now so many cosplayers are going to make sense. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> right. So, uh, what's your other uh, thing you're thankful for this year? This one's a little bit different, but I've been I've actually been thinking about this, uh, and and something I saw today, as a matter of fact, reminded me of it. I am thankful for nerd TV being able to expand so well beyond capes and cows. I mean, I'm talking about shows like Dirk Gently, which just got a second season. One yeah, who did so great on sci-fi. I mean, I'll throw Westworld in there as well. So many hey, shows. Magicians. So well, magicians. Yeah. I mean, think about it. I mean, do we love flash? We love arrow legends. Of course we do agents of shield, but you always know when you read great comics that there's more to nerd culture Right. Just the superhero stuff. So when you start to see shows like this being adapted and put on TV and they're just so good, and, it just makes you happy in your nerd heart. And TNT just announced that they're doing a uh, Snowpiercer TV series. So people don't know what Snowpiercer is, of course, it's that movie with Chris Evans, but it's a sci-fi sh- you know, movie. So they're doing a sci-fi Snowpiercer, which is going to be pretty awesome, I think, on TNT. Yeah, man. I mean, it's just there's so much that's, that's still coming and still being announced. And I'm sure that even before the end of 2016, we're going to to find out more so i just think that letting people know because it's one of those things where if you're watching a superhero property as a, as a non-comic book fan you kind of know it's from a comic book but isn't it nice to go up to your non-comic book friends they start talking about a show and you're like you know that was a comic right and they'll go what you're right right and uh, a second thing that i'm i'm thankful for in 2016 i'm thankful for the deadpool movie because i said when we were you know doing videos a year or so ago Hey, it's not going to get made. Here are the reasons why. And not only did it get made, but it broke box office records. It blew my fucking socks away. It gave me everything I want as a diehard Deadpool fan. It gave me everything that I want. And plus now, even though Tim Miller is gone, you're bringing in the director from John Wick to direct the second film. Fuck yeah, dude. Like, hell yeah. You know, like that's going to be awesome. And Again, I mean, this movie is. I have HBO now, so you know, I'm constantly watching the movie and you know, re, you know, talking about the lines and stuff like that, and, and re, re saying lines and everything else. It's just fun. Like it's just, it's a movie that worked, and I'm interested to see what they're going to do with the second film. I know Cable's going to be in it, but I'm interested to see what they do with everybody else in it and how they where else they take this film and this franchise. I'm excited, man. Deadpool 2, I'm and Deadpool the Deadpool movie I'm so thankful for. I was watching it on an airplane the other day. It was just Hell yeah. it was just me and a buddy of mine watching it on the airplane and I mean I gotta tell you, man, it's it's one of those things that doesn't get old and I think never will get old. So I'm I'm with you, man. I cannot wait to see what they do with this. And you grab the guy from John Wick, so it doesn't to me it doesn't seem like they're gonna miss a beat, and I think that that's also a guy that's gonna see from the outside how well the movie worked and just let let Ryan Reynolds do his thing and then just work your magic along with that and see what happens. Yeah, man. So uh, what else are you thankful for in 2016? I'm going to kind of keep it in the movie realm, uh, very similar to what you said. I'm thankful for Suicide Squad. And I think for a lot of the reasons you just said as well, because, you know, it also broke records and it did way better than anybody expected. And I think what it also did is it restored faith 
in the DC movie universe going forward into stuff like Wonder Woman in 2017 and stuff right. like that and Justice League. And, you know, you sew after Batman versus Superman and, and we won't get into that hornet's nest again. But, <laughs> but I think after that, you wanted to see that there is that hope at the end of the tunnel. And I think for so many reasons, and I know some people disagree with us on this, Suicide Squad did that. But our Merc with One Arm here did not see a movie more in 2016 than he did right. Suicide Squad. I saw- I saw Deadpool twice. I saw Suicide Squad like three times in theaters. So what does that tell you? Well, that, but I mean, also, I mean, listen, I know people are probably listening to this saying, oh my God, you're crazy for saying Suicide Squad was good. But again, go back to when we reviewed it, you know, months ago. And we talked about how if you've read the comics, if you understand the comics, if you've, you know, seen, you know, Frank Miller's, you know, Dark Knight Returns and stuff like that, that's the kind of Joker letter was going for. It was more different, you know, Clown Prince of Crime and stuff like that. You know, and, and to stop comparing it to Heath Ledger because they're two different types of Joker. Stop and, comparing it to Mark Hamill too, by the way. Right, right. Each, each Joker stands on its own, you know. Which they Mark do. Hamill said. Right, and, right. And, uh, and so also, you know, again, you look at this movie, what they've done with it, and just... it's really again you've read the comics it's has that kind of disjointed kind of look and feel that the comics have and that's what's important about it episode 124 go listen to it hear our review of suicide squad and you'll find out all the things that we're talking about right my last thing i'm thankful for in 2016 this is really nothing that's Movie related, it's not video games related. I just want to thank the fans, the people who listen, and you know, over the past year and who stuck with us and, and listened to us from the beginning and so on and so forth. Because you know, we were talking about on the show how we used to get like you know four thousand listens, and you know, when we were starting out, we used to get twenty a week. We were like, oh my god, we got twenty people, <laughs> and and now you know we're in the ten to thirteen thousand a week range, and just I'm just you know, you can't help but be thankful to all the nerds. And the geeks out there who listen to us every week all around the world, like, it's so awesome. It's so great. Yeah, I mean, you guys have told us that you love our guests, and you guys are one of the reasons we're getting these guests in the first place. I mean, you're one of the major reasons. I mean, you guys sent us to Awesome Con and all the other all the other places that we've been. So, I mean, we've just got to thank you. And, I mean, spreading the word and listening to the show, downloading it, whatever you do. You go into our website, downandnerdypodcast.com, and all the great stuff that – we created there because, again, of you guys. So, yeah, I'll echo that, man. Thank you guys so much. And we're going to just keep getting bigger and better as we keep going here. And coming up next, we have two new comics that we're going to discuss this week. Stay tuned. What we're reading is coming up next. This is Ray Chase, the voice of Noctis in Final Fantasy XV. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, nerds. We pull out our long boxes. We discuss what we're reading this week. And James... You went back to your DC roots, and what did you do this week? Absolutely. When I saw the title of this and how it was drawn, it kind of took me back to my childhood a little bit, which is kind of appropriate. So I'm going to do Superpowers, number one from DC Comics. And I say Superpowers, you remember the figures that they had back in the 80s? Yep, that's that's kind of what the title looks like. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, I used to play with those. (laughs) Oh, my Superman's cape flew off when I was holding him outside the car window, said Uh, James at age 8. I think it was Martian Manhunter. <laughs> what? You're telling me this whole time, this whole fucking time, you're like, oh, I remember when I was with my mom and I was like eight years old. It was like 1983 before Nick was born or even a thought. And I had a Superman thing fly out the window and his cape flew up. You're telling me the entire time 
That was Martian Manhunter. I, I don't really remember. I, it was either Superman or Martian Manhunter. God! But it's, it, was, it was definitely one of those. It was not good. Let's just put it that way. Not no. good at all. But this comic, that, like, on the other hand... I'm just, picturing, well, I'm just picking you, picturing you real quick at eight years old, goatee, full of force, just tears weeping down into it. If I could have pulled the Tom Cruise in the last Mission Impossible movie and like hung out the car to try and <laughs> kind of thing, I would have done that. But I don't, I don't think the child services would have... Would have Your mom uh, probably wanted to throw you out of the car like Tom yeah, Cruise well, Mission well, Impossible. I'm surprised she didn't wreck the car because I acted like the world come to an end. So <laughs> she got to wonder where my son gets it from. But, uh, <laughs> but um, going back to the book, it's written and drawn by Art Balthasar, and uh, Franco did some of the writing as well. And what, what you find when you open up this book, it is basically what you would expect to see in an all-ages comic strip, which I was not expecting at first. But, I mean, if you see the cover, it kind of lends itself to that. Now, maybe that's not your cup of tea, and that's fine. But, I mean, as you draw, as you flip through this... You just feel good while you're reading it because you just see the art and it takes you back to, again, you remember in your childhood, if you're the same age as me, playing with those figures, it takes you back to that. And basically, it does have a story, by the way. Batman's missing. So Superman is in Gotham City, not just looking for him, but also trying to clean up some of the crime in Gotham. And therein lies the fun. Yeah, basically seeing Superman interact with all of these different Batman villains is pretty funny. And some of the things that they say to him, and there's one in particular that he comes across. I don't want to ruin who it is because it's too funny. Uh, that he interacts with that kind of gives Superman a hard time. It's, it's got to be like, when you, when you put Superman in Batman's world, you give him all of Batman's villains. If you're a Superman, you have to look at these villains, at least for most of them, and say, you know I can kill you in one punch, right? I'm not saying that that's referenced in here. I will just say to read the comic and find out for yourself. <laughs> uh, we do find out who took Batman, by the way, and it's it's a very interesting premise that they have going here. And Wonder Woman's in the comic as well. You kind of find out why later on. Again, it's not something that I really want to spoil here. But let's say that Batman was taken somewhere that only Superman and Wonder Woman could really reach. The Chuck E. Cheese ball pit. Oh, that is like the, the pit of death. You got to stay out of there. I'm not even sure Superman would want to go in there. Quite frankly, I mean, some there's been children who've gone there and not and not come back. I mean, that's like, <laughs> pretty much. It's like a it's like a deep, dirty abyss. It is like an abyss, exactly. Now, the reasons for why Batman was taken and all that stuff and how he got taken, you find that out at the end of the book. Now, I will say that this is a six part limited series, so this isn't like a main run or anything like that. And clearly, they are trying to you know get to the point as quickly as possible which was my problem with one of the books that i reviewed uh last week was that you know you're just not getting to the point quick enough for the last couple of weeks and i like what they're doing here man i mean is it one of those things that you're gonna just lose it over no i mean it's not one of those comics that's like the greatest thing ever written greatest thing ever drawn but it just makes you feel good about what you're reading. And it's an all-ages book for sure. This is something that you could share with, you know, your sons and daughters and stuff like that. If you wanted to read this with them, you could absolutely do that. And, you know, how many times have we said on the show, isn't that what comics are all about at certain points? Definitely, man. I mean, it's you know, when you look at a limited series, the first thing that comes to mind is, okay, get to the point, and how are they going to arrive at that point without letting it feel rushed, but also making it feel like, okay, you're dragging it out. It's like you do know you have... 
five or six issues before this thing ends, right? So it's finding that medium. I think from what you're you're saying in this is that they do find that medium range at speed of when to deliver things. Absolutely. And I mean, there's plenty of camp in here too. Don't expect anything hard hitting. The jokes are definitely all ages jokes, so you're not going to laugh at all of them. There were a couple chuckles that I got in this book for sure. So this is pretty much like a Justice League action type of book in a sense. Yes, yes. And I would even maybe go a little bit uh, lower age range than that. I mean, this is one of those things that, you know, that I could enjoy with my son who's two. I mean, he would he's not going to understand what he's seeing, but the colors are bright. I mean, everything's drawn in a way that he'll be able to understand it. He's got some of those, you know, those um, – those uh, golden golden spine books that they have. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's a lot like in that vein as well. So it's one of those things that's meant to be understood by younger readers. But there's also some stuff in there like, uh, Daddy, what's Thermiscara? You know, you're going to have to explain what that word is kind of thing. But, right. you know, there there are there is plenty in here for everybody. So, man, it's one of the, for one of those reasons that, you know, you don't put this on the same level as some of the rebirth titles or something in a little, little more on the serious lines. But if you just like something that's, that's light and fun, this is a pull for you and it's a pull for me. I can imagine you talking to your son, Daddy, what's the mascara? It's like his your version of like birds and the bees. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> Daddy, where did Wonder Woman come from? Well, you see, son, when Zeus <laughs> loves Hippolyta. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> very, very much. <laughs> well, yeah, this week man. I this week I went back to uh, IDW and I went back to a comic series that we're fans of. We know people, of course, who both created the comic series and actually are part of the show. I'm talking about Winona Earp Legends, Doc Holliday, number one. Now the writing is done by Tim Rosen, who of course plays Doc Holliday on Winona Earp on Sci-Fi. It's also done by. Bo Smith, who's also the creator of Winona Earp. The art is done by Chris Evan Hughes, and colors are done by Jay Photos. And I want to start off with the art in this. Now, if you're reading the regular Winona Earp series, the art is actually pretty different in this version. Huh. It's a lot more cleaner, in a sense. And not saying that the art in the other Winona Earp comics are bad. It's very good. It's just that from a different style, less grittier, I'll say, than the other one. The other, the other version's more grittier in terms of art. This one's less gritty. Uh, but in terms of story, though, so we all know Winona Earp is a member of the U.S. Marshal's Black Badge Division, and pretty much she has a new assignment where she has to hunt down this killer, and she has, of course, Doc Holliday by her side and Valdez by her side as well. And I'll say this. I don't want to spoil who the the killer and who they're hunting down is but this person the way that this person talks this antagonist talks it's refreshing because one thing that why on earth has had if you watch the show you've read the other comics and this is big props to bo smith who of course is the writer and creator of why on earth the the villains are smart like they're not dumb and when they talk they talk very philosophical and I like that because it makes you think. Like even though you yep. know this person is evil, even though this person is a monster, there's parts of you that are like, you know what? This person made me think of life in a different way. You know, like they're talking about fate and they're talking about different things. And then there's a little bit of, you know, centers on Doc in terms of like his and Wyatt's kind of uh, tr- possible troubled past in a sense. Which we saw it, in the show a little bit. Right. And – I think that this book does a really good job, a great job, in fact, of just making this seem like a real team effort. Again, you have these three characters in here. 
you know, there's mention of dolls and everybody else. But really, this is a great job of making this team, this team of three, feel like everybody matters. Like everybody has a certain thing. And what's great about the art, too, going back to that, is that everybody looks like they do on the show. Like Melanie looks like, why not in the show? You know what I'm saying? Or vice versa. And, you know, Tim's Doc Holiday looks exactly like Tim in the show. And it's great, you know? And what I got to say about this is the writing, as you all know, Wyoming Earp's a, a shit talker, cracks jokes left and right. There are times where you will be laughing out loud at the shit that Wyoming Earp and Doc Holliday say, not just to one another, but in general. Like, it's great. Like, if you're wondering what Doc Holliday would be like walking through a crowd of people in modern time, well, you're going to get a look at that. It's pretty goddamn hilarious for his uh, – his uh, idea of resolving being in such a crowded area. That's great, man. And one of the things I love is that you get an actor like Timothy Rosen who plays a character like Doc Holliday on this show and just immerses himself so much in the character and falls in love with the character so much that he decides to be a part of a comic series. And that's, you know, kind of where Winona Earp started in the first place and how the show even got brought to light. But when you see somebody that you, you see now has a clear love for the character that only translates, not just on the screen, but on the page to how true he wants to stick to this. I think it only helps in both aspects. Right. Right. And, and, and this is a series. This is another home run, you know, slam dunk touchdown pass, you know, Awesome kill, if you want to say, you know, for IDW, because they have been just on fire lately. And it's just been great. They've always had good books. But, I mean, I feel like this last few stretches of, of different varieties of books they've been putting out really is just – have been amazing. Like, they've just – from every aspect, from the villains to the, to the heroes to the art, it's just all been fantastic, phenomenal – this book, again, hats off to Tim and to Bo uh, and to everybody else involved in this book and this series. This is a definite pull for me, man. This is a book. Why well, don't Herb Legends, Doc Holly, number one, you have to pick up. 2016 has definitely been IDW's year. I, mean, oh, I was yes. talking about G.I. Joe Revolution, just Revolution in general last week that was so great. And, you know, I could think of all the books that we've reviewed from IDW and – there's been a lot of hits. I mean, everybody's going to have their hits and misses throughout the year. Every comic book company is going to go through that. But there's been hit after hit after hit from IDW with a lot of their different properties, not just, you know, a property here and there. So that's something to be proud of and something I'm really looking forward to see if they can continue in 2017. And come up next, we'll be whipping out our wands and traveling to New York because we're going to be giving our spoiler-filled review of Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Kevin Alejandro from Geek Squad Boston. You're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Okay, muggles and no mages, we are here for this week in Geek Tame. Nick, we're going to dive into the first ever, I guess you could call it a Harry Potter spinoff, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I say this is more of a prequel than a spinoff, because this takes place before the events of Harry Potter, because we still have, of course, Dumbledore, even though he's not in the movie, he's mentioned throughout the movie, and a couple of other characters as well, so I think this is more of a prequel than anything, really. Yeah, they, they're all spinoffs now. It's a Hollywood <laughs> thing, man. It's, it's one of those things where you, you don't even know what to call it anymore, because they're doing so much of that stuff, but before we get into the movie in depth... Just a word of warning, this is going to be spoiler-filled, boys and girls, so if you haven't seen the movie yet, you might want to go ahead and fast-forward on to nerd news, but I guess that means we can get this shindig on the road, then. 
Yeah, so of course the movie will start off with the story of it. So there's a guy named Newt Scamander played, of course, by Eddie Redmayne. And he's in New York, and he's in New York because he has to find and buy a, a certain beast. He collects them. He wants to write a book about them. As we all know, the book he writes is called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And so it's pretty much his whole concept of the story is, you know, I'm, I'm collecting these beasts, these creatures, because I want wizards and witches to understand them and, and, you know, be one with them. He's kind of like, if you really think about it, he's like a Jane Goodall version of a wizard. <laughs> it really is. And I mean, that that was one of the things about the movie that as a lifelong animal lover and somebody who's rescued animals in the past, that whole his whole rationale really struck a different chord with me, and I think it, it it did with with some other people that maybe don't feel that way. I mean, it that it got to me, man. There was times where when they were inside that world, and he was you know feeding the beasts and taking care of them and stuff like that, and explaining to Kowalski who they were and all this different stuff. That I'm like this this is awesome. It's like an SPCA for magical creatures. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. I mean, you know, you mentioned Kowalski there, played by Dan Fogler, and. You know, he's a nomad, you know, is the American version of Muggle. And I think that throughout this movie, he was really, I think, the true strength of it. I think that he was my, he's my, he was my favorite part of the movie. He stole the show. I mean, you, you always have somebody that in, in any kind of movie that sort of sticks out to you, but you don't really expect those. I guess you can call him a secondary character because he's not one of the absolute main characters. Right. You don't expect somebody like him to steal the show in a story like this because he's a no mage, but he absolutely steals the show. There were so many things that, I mean, pretty much all my laughs came from him. And there were a couple of very touching moments as well that came from him. And I'm as as the movie's going on, I'm like, this this guy, I want more. Right, and of course, you know, the there's a couple of villains in here, of course. You have Graves, played by Colin Farrell. We'll get to who he really is later on in the review, but he is pretty much, for lack of a better term, he is the dick of the movie, pretty much. Yeah, I think that that's a pretty much good way to cover it. He's the dick who tries to disguise himself as a non-dick, but really plays a dick in real life. I mean, that's the only real way to describe it. I mean, you kind of know he's evil right off the get, even though they don't really come out with it. You, you get that sense. I don't well, know if I mean, it's his Colin Farrellness. Well, no, what, I think it's but... more. I think it's more. Anybody who has that type of haircut, you're a dick. Well, we'll get to haircuts later on, too, by the way, when we find out who he's going to be. <laughs> I, I don't think we can just leave, let that one go. But, I mean, at, at one point, I'm looking at this, and we'll get to the other the other villain played by Samantha Morton here in just a second. But at one point, I'm like, is this a Marvel movie? They have a villain problem here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just kind of, I was underwhelmed. Yeah, there really was a, a true villain problem here. I mean, outside of Graves, really, Ezra Miller, who plays Creed's Barebone in this, he has what's called Obscurus. So it's like a dark magic and just kind of repressed everything else. I mean, his you know adoptive mother, Mary Lou, is you know very anti-witch, anti-wizard, pretty much you know like in today's world, in today's type of a world, you know. She's really Christian, to put it in other terms. And like she beats the hell out of the kids. Oh, God, yeah. So let's put out that why. out there. Yeah, and so, you, you know, there's a point in this where you're looking at him, and you're looking at this, and even like the last third of the movie, and you're looking at 
you know, what they're doing, like, really? It's a fucking smoke monster. And it's like, hey, we have a lot of money left over in the budget. Let's just destroy the city. And that's where a lot of the negativity, I think, in this film comes because whenever there's destruction in the movie, all the wizards have to do is wave their wands and then everything's back to fucking normal and there's, like, no <laughs> loss. Although I got to say, as a parent, I saw that and I went, man, I need to get me one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, I think, uh, well, once once that washed away from my mind, I got that sort of feeling too. So it's almost like when we talk about Gotham and you yeah. put Bruce Wayne in danger, it's like, you know he's not going to yeah. die. When they tear everything down, it's like, you know, they're just going to wave their little wand and fix everything. Right. Well, I mean, the people that were crushed in the rubble probably won't come back alive. But still, it's just one of those things where there's just no sense of consequence no. In the movie, when you know things are being torn up and everything like that, there's just no sense of consequence. And another problem this movie had was outside of Kowalski, really, none of the characters I really cared for. They didn't have a lot of substance to them. They were very empty in terms of characters. And maybe it's because J.K. Rowling this is her first time writing a screenplay, but... There's just no depth in terms of the characters. Kowalski, I think, outside of him wanting to own a bakery and stuff like that, and him wanting to get out of the canning factory, he was really the only one that had depth. Well, and it's funny because I mean, you look at you look at Eddie Redmayne, and it's almost like he brought the Stephen Hawking qualities to this Newt character a little bit right. from from Theory of Imagination. I think was the name of the movie. Um, it's almost like he brought that awkwardness to this character as well. And, and I think that, I mean, even, even Tina in, in the movie, who was the, the magic cop, whatever she was calling herself, uh, that was kind of cast aside. You didn't really get a lot of likability from her either. I mean, she kind of no. has redeeming moments in the movie, but you know, you don't really have a whole lot of like, but like when she's sitting in the chair, and it looks like she's about to die, and they save her. My, I know this is gonna sound terrible. My brain's going. I could go either way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you know, if you're thinking that, that's not necessarily a good thing. Although I will say, even though she didn't really have any depth, I did like Queenie. I did like Queenie too. But going back to, to Tina, who of course was played by Catherine Watterson. Yeah, she didn't have any like redeemable qualities. She came off to me as somebody who took her job way too seriously. And then when it was taken away from her, that's all she had, and she didn't know how to be a regular human being kind of thing. Right, and they try to do that towards the tail end of the movie and try to make her more humanized. But I think that, again, yeah, that part where she's, like, about to get killed and they're about to, you know, execute her. I'm sitting in my chair. I'm like, uh, I, I don't care, you know. I almost felt like if she died, that would have actually added something it's, to the well, movie. It's, it's, like, it's like Yvonne Drago said, if, if she dies, she dies, you know? I mean, right. that's that's the way I felt, you know? Right. I mean, it, it, that, and that's the sad thing about the writing, too, is that, I you again, you don't really feel for the characters in this. Well, and, I mean, I felt for Ezra Miller. Yeah. Once you find out what was really going on. Right. When you find out him being, he was being abused and stuff like that and, and, you know, him lashing out at Graves, like, I trusted you and everything else like that. Like, yeah, he came off and said, by the way, in terms of haircuts, Jesus Christ, did nobody know how to cut their hair back then? No. That's a short answer. Move on. (laughs) (laughs) That is, that is all you need to know. No, absolutely not. (laughs) Well, I mean, you look at this movie and there, there were some positives in this. Like, for example... Yeah, seeing the magic 
it did, you know, albeit I didn't like the fact that it took a lot of the consequence out of it. I'm like, oh, it's pretty cool to see stuff get back put that back together and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and and how his magic's being used and stuff. Uh, the, some of the creatures in here were pretty awesome to see. The, the bit again, it's going back to Dan Fogler. The bit with the huge rhino thing was yeah. that was one of the key parts of the movie. Yeah, you know, that was funny. <laughs> and it's great. <laughs> you know, but again, there were certain qualities of it that were were missing. I think that most of it was because. J.K. Rowling, again, this is her first time writing, you know, a screenplay. But hopefully, you know, the second movie because there's plan to make, I believe, five films for I this. I think that's what she said. Yeah. And uh, I look at this, I'm like, okay, well, hopefully, it gets better each movie. But I mean, I just look at this movie, man, and it's just, I didn't hate it, but it wasn't one where, like, again, it's not one of those movies where. You see people on social media like, oh my god, it was amazing. I'm like, it was fine. Well, can I point out two things? And and one of th- one thing that is usually something you'd point out, but I'm going to do it. Um, to me, the editing in this movie was terrible. Yeah. There was oh, a couple shit. of times in this movie where I'm sitting there, and you know it's progressing nicely. And then all of a sudden it's like, I- I'm actually turning to people in the theater going, did I fall asleep? Did I miss right. like 20 minutes? Because Plus- how did we get here? Right, and plus there are certain parts of the, and this is cinematography and stuff like that, where you can't really tell what's going on in certain cases. Right, I was and, lost, and it's not a hard movie to follow. And and, and here's and here's the problem with the movie as well. I don't know if you felt this way too, but there were probably about three or four places where they could have ended the movie right there, and it would have oh, been yeah. fine. Oh and yeah. Oh so, yeah. And you're like, okay, they're gonna end it right here. Nope. Okay, he's gonna walk out in the rain, and he's gonna erase his memory. Nope. Okay, this is gonna be nope. Like there were yep. like three, four possible places where they could have ended it right mm-hmm. there. Absolutely, I, I totally agree with that. So I, I don't know why they chose not to do that. I mean, and I think any. I'm not saying I, I hate the way they ended the movie. What I am saying is you're absolutely right. It could have been a little bit shorter. And another thing that bothered me. I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but and maybe I'm crazy, but. When Graves is doing his little magical beatdown of Newt on the train tracks there, did you get a whole Emperor Luke Skywalker vibe when the Emperor is shooting the, the, the force yeah. the force magic into yeah. into Luke and I'm going and I'm sitting there in my chair going, Really? Really? We're we're really doing this right now? And then of course he gets of course he gets saved, but I'm like, did I, I know too. exactly what you're doing right now. And here's now. the thing, too. The uh, I can't think of the, the, what they call themselves in the movie, but pretty much they're the American version of the Ministry of Magic. They're total dicks! Yes, they're all dicks! It's like, who would want to be a part of your club? You guys are assholes! Right! <laughs> right! It's just like, they have, again, not a lot of people in here outside of Fogler, really, and even really any Redmayne to a certain extent have any redeeming qualities in this movie. And so it's really hard to root for certain people. Like when they show up, you're supposed to have this whole, Oh good. The Calvary's here. They showed up, but they show up. I'm like, Oh great. They're just going to put more fucking fly in the ointment and fuck things up even more. Right. Not only that, it was like, (laughs) it's the law. What law would that be exactly? Right. Because well, I mean, and in your punishment, what is your punishment? Everything for is death. What do you judge well, dread? Well, remember this is like 1930s. So this is set, you know, in magical prohibitions era. So, I mean, but yeah, even I guess, still, huh? Even still. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, a, lot, a lot of stuff was extreme. I mean, like, Hey, back in the day, you know, bootleggers didn't get 
you know, firing squads. I mean, take the wand away or something. You know, they had the wand permits and stuff. You know, you lose your wand for 60 days or something. And then, right. you know, it's, it's like, it's like suspending an NFL player for something for the first time for like, for, for like their career. Like you're out of the league. You use steroids once you're done. Bye. Right. But I mean, again, there were some things that were good, but there was a lot of negative stuff. And with that, let's get to our, uh, our ratings, man. If you want to go first, feel free. Um, well, as somebody who, who was never a huge fan of the, of the Harry Potter world, I wasn't sure how I would, uh, I would take this movie because I, I just wasn't a fan of the movies, never been a huge fan of the books. And, uh, I know that some people are going to say that I'm crazy for that, but I will say that I think it allowed me to get a different perspective on this movie and a couple of things, the whole aspect with the beasts and how he cares for them. I, that, that really hit me, man. That, that hit me hard. So I thought that that was a nice uh, bit of emotion in the movie for anybody who also shares the being an animal lover, anybody who's ever rescued animals. I think that also the underlying theme of uh, anti-bullying was there as well with Ezra Miller's character and that whole home. And I think you hit the nail on the head with the whole uh, Christianity aspect. I think that was there as well. So there was a lot about this movie that didn't have anything to do with Harry Potter. I thought the magic was good. I thought there were parts of it that were okay. Kowalski was amazing, but you're right. The characters just weren't really people that you root for hard. I mean, you root for Eddie Redmayne in certain respects, but in other respects you didn't really because you you just didn't find too much of an emotional attachment to him once the beasts weren't around. So it just didn't seem like the villains were strong enough. So I've got to give this six and a half flesh-eating koosh balls out of ten. That's if you haven't seen the movie, you won't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, if you've seen the trailer, you would know what we're talking about, or what James is talking about. But before I get to my review, real quick, I, so something we forgot to talk about, and it's Johnny Depp playing Grindelwald. Yeah, what that's you, right, that's right. What did you think of him? I, I all, saw that. I know some people. I'll say this: some people are like, "Oh, why does he look that way? Why is he? He doesn't look, you know, like Johnny Depp. You know, they don't like the way he looks." I'm like, well. Like Voldemort, like they showed in the Harry Potter movies, like you use dark magic, it's going to thwart, you know, change your look and it's going to change you all around. So, hey, if you want to look like Uncle Macklemore, feel free. They wanted him to not look like he was in every Tim Burton movie right. ever. <laughs> so that's part of it. Yeah, worst haircut ever too, by the way. That, that little magical thing did not improve his haircut at all. As a matter of fact, there must have been bleach in that magic. Because, uh, wow. Uh, I mean, it's there fine. There must have been some bleach in that <laughs> right. old wand he found. <laughs> and when they put it on his head, he began to frost around. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, I've got Johnny Depp overload anyway. I mean, I'm kind of sick of Johnny Depp as a whole. So, I mean, <laughs> I-, I can see why they probably chose him for this, but... I don't know, man. It doesn't make me look forward to the next movie more, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I mean, I'll say this. I have no problem with his look. If he want, Again, if he wants to look like, you know, a pasty baker, then that's fine. You know, if he wants to look like fucking powder, that's cool. He's but Kowalski's uh, illegitimate yeah, cousin. Looks, <laughs> no, he looks like he rolled around in Kowalski's bakery and just said, I'm here. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> if he wants to... Do that is fine, but again, it's going to be interesting to see how. Because remember, they're going to introduce Dumbledore in the sequel. So, I mean, how is he going to play off with Dumbledore? They're going to experience, you know, why perhaps Dumbledore and him were at odds and stuff like mm-hmm. that too. So that's going to be. I think the second one, 
I think it's going to be more interesting from that relationship aspect. They're going to flesh out Grindelwald even more. But overall, I think that, again, the characters in this were not the best written characters. I didn't think they had a lot of substance to them. There wasn't really... Once you got past kind of why they're doing what they're doing, even though for a lot of cases it wasn't... It was really bare. Uh, there wasn't a lot to them, except for, again, Dan Fogler steals the show and everything he's in. And I mean, if they want to do a movie where it's just Dan Fogler and Queenie, I am totally cool with yeah, that. Yeah, let's do that. Or even like a like a TV series or something. I'd be cool with that, too. Yeah, it'd be fine. But, I mean, I'm going to have to give this... Because when you factor in, again, the acting, you, act, you factor in the lack of consequence, you factor in the cinematography where some stuff was kind of hard to see... Some stuff you can kind of see where it was going. Also, again, the thing that really bothered me the most in the film is when I'm sitting in that theater, and I've been in it since like 2.30, and now it's going like 5.36 or whatever, and uh, I'm like, okay, they can end it here. They can end it here. Oh, they're still going. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's kind of like when you're having sex with somebody, you're like, are you done yet? Are Are you done? Are you done? I don't think that's a question that guys ask hardly ever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say that right now. Right, ladies? I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to give this... Because, again, I did like the creatures in here. I did like the magical aspects. Again, even though some of them, the magic really took away the consequence. Seven out of ten flying crepes. All right. I like that. That works for me. And that's going to do it with our review of Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Coming up next, we have a lot of nerd news coming up, including a whole plethora of news from a galaxy far, far away. Hey, listeners, this is Peter Shinkoda from Daredevil. I play Noble, and you are listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's time we hop in our Millennium Falcons and take a look at what's trending around the galaxy far, far away, because it's time for what, James? News! And we have a huge amount of Star Wars news to talk about. And let's get things started off with, of course, Lucasfilm mentioning, hey, we're thinking about ending the Star- the Skywalker saga being strictly spinoff films. Yeah, and this is, of course, uh, Kathleen Kennedy talked to Entertainment Weekly, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, and everybody that is actually in the media, it seems like, about, well, I mean, they got Rogue One coming out, so they're making the rounds now. I want to point out something that she said. She said, and I quote, to Entertainment Weekly, we're planning to sit down in January since we've had The Force Awakens released and now Rogue One and we've finished shooting Episode 8. We have enough information where we can step back a little bit and say, what are we doing? What do we feel is exciting? And what are some of the things that we want to explore? Now, here's my thing. You want to end the Skywalker saga with Episode 9. I feel two ways about this, okay? Okay. First of all, I'm like, this is what happens when Disney buys stuff. Disney buys something, then they decide, we want to make it our own. And then they decide to just can whatever worked and then move on. And or that upsets say, me. Or they say, we want, make it, we want to make this our own, but then we're like, let's just remake A New Hope and make it, put a seven in front of the, at the end of Star Wars. Right, exactly. Now... Here's my here's the other side of that. The other side of that is, you know what? We've had this for a long time now. It's served us well. The new characters are good. They're likable. You want to know more about them. 
maybe this is going to be okay. Now, I am struggling with these two arguments, and I'm not sure where I'm going to fall on this, and maybe I'm not sure because I haven't seen Episode Eight yet. Well, we haven't seen Rogue One, which won't have a fucking crawled beginning of it. I mean, Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, what is that about? I mean, that's another thing. Come on, and, Disney. And you, know, well, you know what they said? They talked about they talked about why they're not going to have a crawl. Like, oh, because it's not tied to the main episodes. Like, bullshit! It is! You're showing, you're showing how the Death Star plans were stolen. Right, it's this tied. is a prequel. It's exactly tied into the Skywalker saga. It, it, if, you, if that's what you want to call it, if that's the new thing we're calling it, which I didn't realize that's what it was. Thanks, Disney, for clearing that up for me. I appreciate that. It absolutely is part of it because it is the basis for A New Hope in right. the beginning. <laughs> it is exactly right. part of it. Right, and here's the thing, too. You, you do this thing where they say, okay, we want to end the Star Skywalker saga. And I'm, at first I'm like, okay, cool, because really something I, one thing I've been really chanting and, and pretty much carrying a torch for since the whole acquisition of Disney getting Star, Star Wars happened was, man, I really hope they like, you know, go with some different characters. They go away from the Jedi. They go away from the stuff. And, you know, it seemed like they were going to do that because, I mean, Yes, we're getting a Han Solo movie, but we're apparently supposed to get a Boba Fett movie directed by Josh Trank. Now, of course, I was, let's talk about this. Fantastic Four was a piece of Martian shit, but I mean, still, we could have had a Boba Fett movie and, and, and just different things, but there's just so many different characters. It's like, yeah, okay, cool, but here's my problem with this, too. Is this my, my worry is, okay, so say, for instance... Disney says, okay, we're not going to do any more episodes anymore. Everything's going to be all standalone, okay? But here's the problem. You have characters like – if you're doing movies like Han Solo and stuff like that, you're using characters from that Skywalker saga. Yeah. So you're going to have to tie them into the episodes somewhere, right? Especially if they are related, which some of them are. We know that already. It could be more as the story goes on. You will – here's the deal, Disney. Whether you like it or not. No matter what you do, you will never be able to end the Skywalker saga, ever. Because there's always going to be a tie-in, whether it be Han Solo, Princess Leia, Chewbacca, the sixth Ewok that died in Return of the Jedi. (laughs) It doesn't matter. There is nothing you can do to not tie this in. I mean, most of the Star Wars novels were based on the Skywalker children anyway. Right. You're just going to not do that now because of that? God, you know what I really like to see? I would love to see a nature documentary of, like, Tauntauns and being in Animals on Hoth, narrated that by Morgan Freeman. And you've just got that soft voice while somebody's being ripped to shreds about telling you that that's just nature doing its thing. While in the Meanwhile, you're crying in the corner about why nobody helped the poor wildebeest. <laughs> and now we see the Tauntaun trekking across the world of Hoth. To find a mate. But, oh, look at that. What's there? It's a polar bear with six eyes and seven legs. And thus down goes the Tauntaun, and nature <laughs> does its cruel mystery once again. Come on! Help that, the Tauntaun! <laughs> that Tauntaun walked through seven miles of snowy shit, but came out murdered on the other side. <laughs> but look how warm he is. <laughs> Can you imagine if there was like an okay, really quick tangent. Can you imagine if there was like a Tauntaun Easy Bake Oven? 
Aww. <laughs> <laughs> you, stick the, you stick the little moles inside the stomach and presto in five minutes. When you, co- have, you have cookies. When the color in Luke's face comes back, he's ready to come out. <laughs> <laughs> Insert Luke, five minutes until tan. <laughs> I sound like I'm laughing like Mickey on fucking cocaine. Ah! I still think that I still think that they, there needs to be a Luke Skywalker in the Tauntaun pop. There, there just has to be, you know, like put put just put like fluff in there and you can just shove him in there. You know, the little build a bear fluff that they use the cotton stuff. Just shove him in there. Double as a puppet. The Tauntaun can double as a hand puppet. Wouldn't even need feet. You can just lay it there on the shelf <laughs> next to your other pops. But going back to the to the movie talk, yeah, I mean, again, you have the Han Solo movies. And again, it's like you're not just going to make one Han Solo movie. You're no. going to make multiple Han Solo movies, you know? And it's like, who knows, they're probably going to Lando movie because Donald Glover's playing Lando. So, again, it's like you're still st- – like Disney's realized, yeah, you want to do these spinoffs, but you do know you're staying within the Skywalker saga world, right? And they're never going to let it go, no matter what they say. As a matter of fact, we're getting, we're getting Cars 3. If, it, if it's Disney and it's making money, well, they're going to pump these out until the cows come home. That's the problem, though, is that Disney, when they first acquired Lucasfilm and Star Wars, like, oh, we're, oh the whole extended universe, we're not going to you know extend on that we're not going to build on that we're just gonna, and so pretty much they pretty much just said like the whole extended universe is pretty much non-canon or whatever so it's like okay so you take away all that but then you're like oh we want to do something different outside the saga you fucking can't because you just took away you said everything that's not connected pretty much to the saga is not literal canon right oh Fuck yourself. Even if you go forward with Ray and all these characters, there will always be a connection there. There will, uh, and if Ray has children, guess what? There's still a connection there. There's a lineage that you can't just ignore because you want to pretend that you're doing a new story. It doesn't work that way because us fans do not forget these things. And guess what? There's Google. You will never hide from Google, Disney, no matter how much you try. I mean, how many credits you offer, you will never, never escape Google. There's a yeah, Star Wars Wikipedia. We'll be able to connect it forever, okay? Hey, 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 it's called Wikipedia. Get That's it right, right. God damn it. That's true. Get it right. Get it right. And moving on to our next story. So, James, question for you. Did you ever see The Dark Crystal? Absolutely. It's been a while, but yes. I'm going to raise my hand, and I'm going to. I, I will take as much abuse as possible. I have never seen The Dark Crystal. Well, given your age... That's kind of okay, because, I mean, think about it. The, this was 1982. Oh, uh, yeah, I was a thought. There you go. That's all you need to know. I mean, granted, I was three, and I saw it a little bit later on, but, you know, this is when, you know, these kinds of movies would be on TV and stuff, so at my age, I was able to, to catch it certainly more than you would, so I, I think that that's okay. I mean, I know people are going to yell at you anyway, because in nerd culture, we're expected to see absolutely everything of everything and remember every single detail about it, but I might give you a pass. Oh, I thank you, sir. Thank you for giving me a pass. Well, anyways, people have been wondering, when are we going to get a Dark Crystal sequel? When are we going to get one? Well, apparently we are getting one, but not in the theaters. It's going to be a 12-issue series from Boom Studios and the Henson Company. Now, it's going to be based on the unproduced screenplay that follows the fantasy movie from 1982. Now, nobody's happier about this than Boom. 
because oh, yeah. now they're going to get to tell the story that has been untold. I mean, I think having Cy Spurrier on board for this is a great get for them as well. I mean, I think that, that Cy is going to bring exactly what you want to a story like this. And that also gives me hope for the art because anytime Cy Spurrier is attached, you're going to get a great artist as well. I love the fact that they're going to give it 12 issues to really get in depth and tell the story that, that they want to tell. Um, I think this is the right way to go. I don't think that this is something I wanted on on film because how many times have we said you bring a sequel to light 30 plus years later and what are you really going to get? Is it going to, because it's not going to, in, in a certain respect, yes, it'll remind people of what they love, but in a certain respect, you're going to use certain technologies from today that are just going to, that's just going to give it a different feel. I think this is the perfect way to do this and bring it to light. This can go two ways. I'm happy that Boob's going to be doing this. This can go two ways. This can go, this is going to be an amazing 12 issue series, or it's going to be one of those series where, and again, I know it's going to be based on, on, you know, a, a screenplay that was unproduced, but it could still fall into that range of, you know, it's been 30 plus years since the movie came out in 82. Do we really need a sequel? Yeah, and I mean, visual-wise, I mean, I guess that that goes for the comic, too. I mean, you're not going to get the same feeling seeing these creations in a comic that you are on the screen. I mean, when Jim Henson did it, because let's face it, what Jim Henson did is still never been matched in my eyes. And the visuals that Jim Henson and the, and the company was able to create, it was it was special. So you can't just throw that in anywhere and expect to adapt and give people the same feeling. Now, I know that we've both read the some of the Henson stuff, that the boom's already done and 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 some of it's been good and some of it hasn't but i don't think you can absolutely capture the true essence of anything that jim henson did other than the way he did it so you you really have to go into this if you want it and appreciate it for what it is because it's just no matter what you do it's not going to be the same i think honestly though you know, when you really think about it, this has the Henson name attached to it. So there's a lot of love there. There's a lot of passion there. There's a lot of fandom there. So I think, you know, win, lose, draw, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to love this because it has that Henson name attached to it. You know, it's it's kind of like, you know, going back to our uh, Fantastic Beast review. You know, there are people like us who thought, hey, it wasn't the best movie. But you know what? There are people who are very much into the Harry Potter franchise, the books and the movies and very heavily invested in this. They're saying, oh, it was the greatest thing ever. Like, it's because they're hardcore fans. So I think if you're a hardcore fan, you're going to like this no matter what. But again, I think for somebody like myself who hasn't seen the movie, and of course, you know, before reading this, I will watch the movie before reading this series. But I think you look at this, you're like, there's not much, there's not much of a loss. If it's not good, there's not much of a loss for me because I wasn't that invested into it. Whereas somebody like you who's seen the movie and again, people who are, I love Jim Henson, but again, I love more of the Muppets and stuff like that outside of, you know, Labyrinth and outside of, of course, uh, Dark Crystal. So again, there's, there's less of an emotional attachment for me with this. And I think that that's fine. And I think that that's your, you know, for lack of a better term, your generation, that's how you're going to feel about it. I mean, even people from your generation that have seen it, love it. I think that that's, it's easy to, to feel that way about it. And in, in a sense, it still modernizes it no matter what you want to do, because you're not going to make it look like it would have in 1982 or whenever the movie would right. come out, let's say 1984, 85 ish, 
You're never going to recreate that as much as hard as you try. You know, like Stranger Things was lightning in a bottle. To be able to create that time period so accurately and so well and make you feel so much like you were in that realm is one thing. But you enter the realm of Jim Henson and something that's a little bit more in a, in a creative aspect and what he was able to do. You're never going to get it exactly the way it was. So all you can do is throw it out there and hope for the best. And speaking of realms, our last story, of course, deals with Earthrealm. And I say that because, according to Variety, Simon McQuaid is in talks with New Line to direct the Mortal Kombat reboot. Now, of course, this is a movie that's been talked about for a while now. But now that's finally going to get a director who, of course, has done high-profile campaigns for Beast by Dre, Halo, PlayStation. This is promising because now they're finally having somebody help, you know, at the helm of this. I got to tell you. The first Mortal Kombat movie from the 90s, 95, that was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, I liked it a lot. Love it. Annihilation was shit, but I I mean, you know, uh, the first movie was great. And, you know, you, of course, had uh, the web series and from a couple of years ago. I believe back in 2010 was really when the web series started to come out. And that was great because it was more grounded. Like, Baraka was a surgeon. He implanted blades in his arms. He wasn't really a Tarkatan. And, you know, it was more realistic in a sense. I know it's a stretch to talk about Mortal Kombat, but I kind of liked it. You know, yeah. like, Reptile was, you know, we didn't really see Reptile. Reptile was this, like, man who had a skin condition and was a current, you know, he was a, 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 cannibal, a cannibal and stuff like that. So it's really interesting to see what they're going to do with this. If I recall, our buddy Peter Shinkoda was in that web series as well. Yes. So so there you go. We got a little bit of perspective there. I mean, I, I like that aspect of, of doing it that way, if that's the way they're going to do it. I mean, of course, if they don't, I'd, I'm not going to be mad about that either, but I actually think that that is a good starting point. Now, what characters you want to choose is is a matter of perspective, I guess. I mean, there's certain ones that, as a Mortal Kombat fan, you can't not see Scorpion and Sub-Zero, so you better figure that out. But, I mean, how much do you play around with what characters you have? Because now, they've even, since MKX, we've extended it even more now, so there's even more characters are a possibility. So, I mean, I think the biggest challenge here is, where do you go with this? <clears throat> right, and you, you mentioned, you know, you have this next generation of characters with MKX coming out, and... and you know, establishes the, the future here. And I think you look at what's going on. Well, it could be easy to go back to the Luke Kang and Sonya Blades and Johnny Cage's the world. Hey, like, let's look at, you know, I would love to see, I would love to see kind of like a movie that kind of highlights the war between uh, Sub-Zero's clan and Scorpion's clan. Like, I would like to kind of yeah. see that be, that'd be pretty interesting, you know? And, uh, and it'd be pretty cool to see something like that. As far as, you know, other characters, you have Quan Chi you can put in there. You can put Shinnok in there. Uh, I remember years ago, actually, uh, it was rumored that this is, I mean, this is how far this thing goes back. This is years ago. This was like 98 when I was in Disney, and they were like, oh, there's, you know, talks of New World Combat movie and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, okay. And, and this is like right around the time number four came out, I believe, too. So. You look at this, you're like, oh, Quan Chi, there's some other you know, players in this. Again, it's it's interesting where they could go with this. I mean, if Cole Khan from MKX, you can go with that round. Yep. It, it, there's two different things. But, I mean, either way, something we can agree on, though, is that Earthrealm is going to be somehow in danger. 
Absolutely. I mean, I don't need them to go back to like Shang Tsung and Goro and stuff like that. I don't yeah. really need them to do that. I do need them to give us some of the characters that we love and remember. I would like love, that. I mean, we're talking about Star Wars spinoff movies. I would love a Lin Kuei Sub-Zero spinoff film. Yeah, that that wouldn't be the end of the world. I mean, I think that what they did with the Mortal Kombat comic that DC put out recently that kind of was around the release of MKX, I think that that was a pretty good story as well. So, I mean, and I don't need them to go the whole Liu Kang route either anymore. I don't need them to tell that story. I feel like that's been told. So, in, in the respect that we were talking about with our Star Wars discussion, if you want to give us something different, you can do that safely here because I think that there is so much that has been untold that could still tell, and just like you were saying a couple minutes ago. Yeah, man, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Nerd News. Come up next, we're going to be heading to the tombs of ancient Egypt and the mummy. We're going to be talking to the writer of the mummy, we're talking, of course, to Peter Milligan. He's going to be joining us next on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is Karen Ashley from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. The monsters are here this week on the Down and Nerdy podcast. One in particular that we actually spotlighted a couple, a couple weeks ago was the Mummy from the new Hammer Comics, which is a brand of Titan Comics. We just happen to have the writer on this week. It's Peter Milligan himself, sir. How you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Matter of fact, Peter, when we found out that Titan Comics was doing this new Hammer Comics horror initiative, how excited were you, and did you ask to be a part of this Mummy project? No, uh, it started at Hammer, uh, the, the Hammer Films, which is based in uh, London, asked me into their office and said they were interested in uh, looking at some of their uh, early, some of their products, you know, some of their characters they have. And they said to me, could you come up with a new angle on the mummy? And I said, okay, then. So they sort of gave me about four CDs, four DVDs, you know, they're kind of the curse of the mummy, the return of the mummy, with a great old Hammer uh Movies. In, in this country, Hammer is pretty much an institution. They have a certain kind of sensibility. And I went to him home and I watched all these movies and uh, I realised what wasn't, you know, I realised what wasn't funny anymore was like tall six-foot guys, a bit skinny, wrapped in bandages running around. That can never be funny again. It's going to be comical always, you know. So I thought, so that I thought, I paced around and I really thought, what could be a new angle? What could make a mummy scary? What, could, what, is it scare, what is it that could scare me about this story? And what interests me about this story? You know, I paced around, I really kind of banged my head against the wall, and I was talking to the director, he said, give it up, man. He said, uh, you, it's the end, Bobby's this old-fashioned, you can't make it contemporary. I, mean, I wanted to do something that felt modern, for a modern audience, it felt to say, it, felt it was going to say something about you know, our condition. Uh, I didn't really have the breakthrough idea until I was in a, a, a small Egypt... Uh, Gallery, and I was looking at this mummy spread eagled on um on this uh, in this case, you know, and uh, it was it was put out for display. This mummy, and I was reading a little bit about this. Had once, uh, three thousand years ago, this woman had been an amazingly proud and forceful and powerful woman. For a woman to be um mummified is no mean thing. And uh, this teacher was trying to get these school kids enthused about it, and uh, you know they were looking at their iPhones, they were talking amongst themselves, they were so bored by it, and I just thought. That's the story. There's the start of the story. There, how this body is being used. So now I've got this idea that, yeah, bodies being used. There's something there that is not just about mummies. It's about, you know. So that was my anyway, a long rambling answer to our hammer took me into the answer. They said come up with a new angle, and I did come up with a new angle, and this is it. 
And, you know, someone who is very popular in Egyptian history, literature, and religion is Anubis. So as a writer, what about Anubis do you find is the most unique? Well, look, I mean, I'm fascinated by all the gods. I mean, I think that they just look so bloody weird. And they're just amazing. I mean, if you look at them, uh, and clearly them, I mean, Anubis looks dark. He's, he's almost like, I don't know, he like, if Anubis wore clothes, he'd wear black, right? Because he's kind of like... He's, like, he's the slightly scary one and the amazing one and the kind of cool, sexy one as well. Mm-hmm. Osiris, he's obviously the good guy, but he's also probably a bit squeaky clean and probably a bit dull. But um, overall, I think the gods and this whole pantheon of gods is just so amazing. And um, so, you know, I was really, I really was interested in getting some of that stuff in. Looking at the old Mummy films, one of the things I thought, well, that I kind of missed as a kid, that I was really interested in as a kid, uh, you know, going to the British Museum, looking at the Egypt Gallery, was I was really interested in, you know, all of that kind of Egyptology, all of that kind of mythology that was around uh, Egypt, you know, the, the land of the dead, and all that stuff was so rich, and you didn't get much of that in the mummy films. You might have, you might, it might be, it might be kind of referred to, but you didn't actually probably because the budget wasn't big enough. But um, the wonderful thing about comics is we have a limitless budget, so I was really keen on getting us into the land of the dead, getting us into some real uh, Egyptian uh, mythology. And uh, that's what this book does. Absolutely. I want I want to touch on something that you kind of touched on a couple minutes ago. One of the things I loved about this book was when, just when you think you're in ancient Egypt, a door sort of opens and you find yourself in a more modern like city setting. So talk a little bit more about how important it was to actually combine those two worlds in the story. Yes. Well, obviously, that was that's kind of a big reveal moment. This is... This is a story about ancient Egypt, but it's a story that spans thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, like, so, so we think we sometimes we're seeing real gods, sometimes we're seeing people who, if you like, feel invested in the power of those gods. Because, I mean, you know, these kind of like, just as like the, the priests in ancient Egypt would have uh, dressed up as uh, Anubis or as Thoth, and would have, in a sense, have been invested with the spirit of that god. You know, this, in, this, in this story, there are kind of secret societies running around London and the world who are kind of at war with each other, who all kind of have a, kind of a, a deep interest in Egypt and particularly in immortality, which is the bedrock of all of Egyptian life and, and obsession. And, you know, throughout the first issue, we see angels succumb to the priestess known as Nebatas. So as the series progresses, Peter... Will we see a spiritual mental battle between the two? Well, actually, it's a very inter- I mean, Angel is um is a is a is a young woman who's who's been sex trafficked into uh into the UK, and uh, this was this followed off my theme that I got when I was looking at this uh mummy being spread out eagles for the boredom of young school kids. <laughs> <laughs> I was not one of those school kids. I was one of those nerdy school kids, really interested in it. It was about, so the theme, if you like, is how bodies can be used, how we can be used, how we use these kind of ancient uh, dead people for our gratification. 2,000 years ago, is fine. Let's lay them out in front of everyone for their edification. 20 years ago, that's probably a bit too soon. I was quite interested in, at what point is it okay to have these kind of creatures like monuments or exhibitions in a, in a gallery? So it's about bodies being used. The mummies are being used. The angel herself. See, what is the, what is the, modern, I, what's the modern expression of how bodies can be used? And these poor young women being duped into going to countries thinking they've got a job and instead being sex trafficked. And angel is one of those women. She's a feisty woman 
and she she's she's at the beginning she is being possessed by this uh ancient um ancient priestess called Nebata. uh the, the title of the book is the mummy Panobsessed, and we we all know what Panobsessed means uh it means when a, often like a manuscript is overwritten by another manuscript. Mm-hmm. What we discover is that Angel's soul, if you like, is going to be overwritten by this other soul. And the story becomes like a, relation, a story of the relationship between these two women, both of whom in their own way are being used by these, these strange uh, mortality-obsessed um, secret societies. One of whom is called the, uh, the, um, the Sex of Anubis. The other one is called the Pyramid Club. Absolutely. We're talking to writer Peter Milligan of Titan Comics and Hammer's The Mummy, which, of course, issue one's out right now. We're looking forward to issue two coming out this December. Now, Peter, let's talk about Angel again for a second. When she tries to escape later on in the first issue, we see her get assistance from someone, but she's very hesitant with that. So how much will her kind of trust issues play a role in the story going forward? It's a deep part of the film. I mean, this woman has been, you know, she had a boyfriend, they said, yeah, I can get you a good job in UK. She goes to have a good job, then she's kind of told that, no, there is no job. The only job you've got is working for us as a prostitute. So, basically, all her trust in people, but men particularly, has been blown out of the water. So the story, in a bit, a bit of this story is about her learning to either trust or not trust someone else again. But, particularly in the first episode, She's got deep trust issues. Let's look outside of the Hammer realm. Let's go into the Titan realm. So Titan also publishes Doctor Who comics, Peter. So what would your version of a Mummy and Doctor Who crossover look like? Well, it's very interesting because what is so interesting about the Mummy is that it goes back so far in time, like thousands of years, which for, for Doctor Who would be no problem whatsoever. I mean, he is a character who nips across time. So, you know, it's like going down to buy a pint of milk. He kind of goes 2,000 years in the past. So it'd be an interesting character with him to explore, uh, to explore ancient Egypt. But um, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, a mummy bursting out of the TARDIS, I'm not quite sure if that's going to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> but, uh, then again, you know, I've seen worse. <laughs> this is true. If anybody could make it work, I'm sure you could. Now, Pete... Peter, when we see a name like The Mummy on a comic, I mean, it brings back different memories for different generations. I think therein lies the challenge. So going forward in the series, how do you kind of balance that nostalgia while also trying to tell a unique story in upcoming issues? First of all, I think it's to tell a good story about a person that feels like a real person, you know, a real living person who we kind of have some sympathy with, which is Angel. And then and then to make, and to make the whole process of mummification and possession to make it mean something and to make it beyond theme, which is about the theme of bodies being used, bodies being misused. So, I mean, I mean, the mummy has had different incarnations, if you like, over the years. In the past, it was always a straightforward horror story. It was, like, it was a monster, you know, like the mummy, you got Frankenstein, you got, you know, you got Dracula, you got those big hitter kind of horror things. Obviously, with the Brandon Frazier uh films that came out a while ago, which some younger uh, listeners would, that's what they know The Mummy about, with uh, Brandon Fraser and Rachel Weisz, which is really like, which is really The Mummy meets uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was that idea, you mm-hmm. know. But, um, which I think is okay. I mean, it's not my cup of tea, but I think, like, once you get the joke, I don't want to see it again, you know, because it's kind of like, like, I don't really want to see Raiders of the Lost Ark Part 8. Not, and it seems to be The Mummy... 
with Brandon Fraser, that kind of mummy has become there. It's like tongue in cheek. I think what one thing I didn't want to do with this book is camp it up. It's, it's a danger, I think, when you're dealing with these uh, uh, horror mainstays like uh, the mummy to make it camp, to make it a bit tongue in cheek. I really didn't want to do that. I wanted, I wanted to kind of, kind of find the horror in it and to find the real scariness and the strangeness of it. It's a very strange thing. Taking out with the moisture, taking out with the moisture of a body, taking, its, taking the organs and putting them into different jars and then sucking the brain through its nose and then wrapping it up in bandages and digging it and putting it in a hole. Thinking, yes, that's a really good idea. Oh, yeah. It's like very dark and, and you know, out, in some terms, you know, otherworldly forms of, of science in a way. It was, it was science exactly. It was their cutting-edge science. It was their equivalent of laser brain surgery. You know, it was the thing that was going to potentially prolong your life. Very much so. And, you know, two of the many positives of this series, and there are tons of positives with this series, Peter, of, of course, the art and the colors by Ronald Sinfrier and Ming Sen. So first off, when you saw their work, what was your reaction? Second, when you're doing a series like The Mummy, what to you are the most important aesthetics in terms of art? Well, always uh, with the art, with any story, it's that the artist understands and is sympathetic towards the narrative storytelling, understands the story. Art can be great art, but actually really great art is, is really great art that tells the story. And that's always key. I remember something that um, Steve Dillon, you know, uh, rest in peace, uh, Steve, who passed away recently. Uh, Steve Dillon was asked once, um, about the kind of artwork he really likes to do. And he said, it's the story. And the artwork that really works is the artwork that's sympathetic towards the story. And I think that what um, Ronaldson does, he has a really claustrophobic, clammy, kind of closed-in, slightly uncomfortable, paranoid quality that just works completely well for this modern, urban retelling of the mummy story. I mean, he, he, so he's really perfect for that. Absolutely. We can't wait to see more of The Mummy, which issue one is in stores right now. You can get it through Titan Comics. Also check out titan-comics.com if you want to go there. And more going to be coming up early in December. Can't wait to see that from writer Peter Milligan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you. So James, if you're ever sleeping at night and you feel a pair of pliers going up your nose and you see me there, just know that I'm not killing you. I'm not trying to take your brain. Well, I am trying to take your brain, but I'm trying to preserve your life even further. So just know that I'm doing it out of love. Well, I mean, I know who wouldn't want to take this brain, right? So if I see a pair of needle nose <laughs> in your hand, I'll understand. Exactly. But I mean, it was fun talking to Peter about The Mummy. I mean, it's just such a phenomenal series. We, you know, we reviewed it on the show a while back and it's just... It's everything you want. You know, as right. I said, you know, it's a darker take on it. And it's going looking at the science, really, of mummification, that creep factor. Because, again, the mummy, again, is just, as Peter said, you know, it's a six-foot guy running around in bandages, you know. But, really, the, the creep factor is the mummification process. It's the cutting out of the tongue. It's the, you know, the, the taking out of the brains and the organs going in different jars and everything else like that. And this series from Hammer is just 
phenomenal. And I like that he gets that. I mean, that was one of the things I loved about the book is he gets it. He gets the essence of why this is scary and why we should be doing this in the first place. And it's not the, like you said, six foot guy wrapped in bandages and kind of thing, you know? No, he's actually giving you the creepy, like I said when I reviewed it, the creepy uncomfortable factor of this story. And not only he's given the stuff that I think we all love, about ancient Egyptian history, but we're also putting that in a modern spin on two different sides. And that was the thing when I saw it, and when I read the book, I'm like, whoa, what just happened? Because when you add in secret societies, when you add in the sex trafficking, so you're you're luring victims into this, you know, as he said, you'll pre this promise of a job, next thing you know, you're being sex trafficked, and then there's more to that outside of that, and it's just something that's very dark and, and disturbing but also in a sense fun as well and it's very interesting as well and again thanks to peter milligan for coming on talking about the mummy be sure to get issue two when it drops but hey that's gonna do it for us here at the down and nerdy podcast be sure to hit us up on facebook facebook.com slash down and nerdy we're also on twitter at down and nerdy 757 i'm on the twitter and instagram at Merck with one arm, the one is spelled out. Mr. Witham, where can they find your mummified corpse? Speaking of spelling, I'm at James Ace Witham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. And if you're thinking, man, I'm not going to remember all that. I don't have a pen. And who carries pens anymore? Well, you don't need to. You can go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Go to the About Us section if you want to find us. If you want to find out what's going on in the show this week, you could do that in the This Week section. You know, hey, maybe you want to buy... The first issue of The Mummy. We'll help you out with that in the This Week section of our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, practice safe comic book reading and always bag and board your comics. And be sure to wrap your mummies tight.